0: Good morning This is Hacker Mike coming at you From the place known as Princeton South Also known as Tastes just like Princeton But it's not Princeton This is where everyone is obsessed with being Not Trenton But uh It's really amazing to live here and I'll tell you some other things that I love. So yesterday we went to uh, Halo Farms next to Trenton Farmer's Market and we picked up some amazing ice cream, some of the best you'd ever get. Um, We got the uh, mango, which is really good, the raspberry, which Knocks your socks off. The um, butter per can, butter praline, chocolate, peanut butter, so and vanilla. I think we actually got butter praline and not butter pecan. can. So instead of going to Carvel, or four people, instead of going to Carvel and dropping 30, 40 bucks on ice cream, we went to uh, Halo and picked up six quarts and milk and buttermilk, all locally produced micro dairy. And uh, I think it was 26 dollars with four uh, are they gallons or a liter the big. Anyway, we got a lot of stuff. And it's pretty damn cheap and pretty damn good. And we have the farmer's market here. And we have all these ethnic shops. And we're very central. You know, we thought about... If we had to move from New Jersey for tax purposes... Or because the society is collapsing, where would we go? And really, um... It is a um, a tough decision to actually find someplace with these qualities. <sighs> yeah, today's a late start. We did not. Uh, I did not get up early at 6:41. So this is going to be a short podcast if any I don't know if we'll have time to actually clip any shows but I got some things in my mind I want to share with you (coughs) as you see we have some different patterns and uh, let's talk about patterns so I have been continuing to listen to the last two podcast sources which are the um, Hungarian brain philosopher and the um, history of uh, philosophy guy. And let me tell you, I had to go to 60% speed on my podcast player just to attempt to understand what he was saying. So, you know, talk about a slow brain and talk about being slow to pick up concepts. I think that I have some blockage that's preventing me from picking up on things easily, and um, I need to send myself back to school, so to say,
1: <clears throat>
0: and learn how to learn again. But also, when people talk about like A, B, and C and D. I get totally confused. I can't keep track of which is which, to be honest. And um, I get very, very confused easily. And uh, if you ever get confused listening to my podcast, please let me know and we'll work it out. Because I do want to share information with you. This is not just a therapy session. This is also a communication session. We're creating a group mind here. You see, a group mind and a group think, because it's not just me talking into a microphone, walking down the street, 6:40 in the morning, in the middle of New Jersey. Nope, it's a global or universal communication network. <clears throat> because I get feedback from my listeners. They listen to what I say. And even if we only have four active listeners, I also talk to people and chat with people about the ideas we discuss. So there's more than just one brain involved here, one person involved. And I hope to... uh, Good morning. I hope we can find the new uh, method, the new way to... Uh now growing, growing our uh, listenership is not really the goal, because if I have one person to talk to and share this with, that's great. And now it looks like we're slowly building up an audience. And it's going to be a tough fight, but I think people see that I'm persistent in what I'm doing, dependable in some way on being random so that, um, you know, maybe you will find some piece that's interesting to you and check back once in a while. And nobody has to listen to all the episodes, believe me. I don't even listen to them all. So here's some of the things that I've been thinking about. Well, first of all, the History of Philosophy guy. um, From Saturday's episode. No. Friday's. He was great, but I think, um, and basically what he was saying is that you can map, so we get into, he gets into girdle Escherbach, well, girdle. he gets in the girdle, into the girdle of the girdle Escherbach. If you haven't read Gürtel Escherbach, we're going to actually have to uh, revisit that. Um, and I have to get our uh, one of our hosts, Mr. Dren, <coughs> on this uh, topic. He's studying at Stanford and has or Nemo, as they call him. He's studying at Stanford and has a um, is following the legacy of Hofstetter. <coughs> and uh so basically it starts out with Frege Frege, who attempted to map logic onto set theory or mathematics on set theory using logic and make it provable. And um, so like a rewriting or mapping, a transformation of axioms, and I can understand that. So in Haskell, we define a function that will take some input set you have a list of inputs, let's say, and then you do switches or cases, and you say, if the thing is of this type, then do that. And then the output of that function would be a different type of data. So you would map the data from one type onto another. So I get that. And a lot of what I've been doing now in Haskell is related to that. So I'll tell you what I'm working on. I'm taking the JSON data from the introspector Python. So I wrote a simple crude Python parser that parses out the abstract syntax trees tu file from the GCC. And then, it emits, among other things, a JSON file. But what's nice about the Haskell is that, or Haskell, it gives you this a structure, a rigid structure that you can apply to your thoughts to make them more structured. Python doesn't necessarily do that. Python gives you very loose structure to apply to your thoughts and in the end, your thoughts will become less structured. <clears throat> so, just by getting your code working in Python doesn't really add a structure to it necessarily. You're not forced into one. So... <clears throat> but that's also the learning process. Boy, my feet are going to get wet on this path. The grass is totally wet. Okay, we're going to go a different way today. I don't feel like getting totally wet feet. Sorry. It's funny because when I go out... Maybe i just deal with the wet feet. These are my new shoes. My new walking kicks that my wife got me. Um, And they are quite comfortable. Okay. So we're going to try and find some roads that are not heavily traveled. A road less traveled. Um... So Python will not necessarily structure your thoughts, but Pascal will force you into a more rigid structure. So the basic idea that is, is that you define a data type called data. So you say data and then you give it a name. We talked about this. And then you describe the different forms that that data type can appear in. You know. So if he's mapping from math onto logic, so he would have one data type called math, and he would describe all the different forms of math, and he would have one data type called logic, and describe all the forms of logic that you could use. And then he would have some data in mathematical form, so instances of the type math. And he would map that or transform that using a function to types of logic. And he also said that numbers were properties. And I listened to that five times, and I'm still wondering, what does it mean that a number is a property? I guess a number might be an identifier of some kind. property, meaning an identity. Or, I always thought that numbers were just labels. But a number is also an address and can be used to find the item in question. You know, if you give a specific number that could just be transformed into points or dots or steps. And just say you go 1,562 steps in this direction. So, a distance or a location, number of operations, number of repeats, an array index. I don't know. Those are uses for numbers, but what is a number itself? well. So we're gonna to have to go back and read Frege because the guy wasn't really... So basically, here's the insights from this talk. Number one... Look at that, a bicycle or a ball inflator. So number one is that the um, was attempting to map from math onto logic using set theory the second thing is that's Frege he derived a set of of rules that could be executed on their own by a computer so basically this was an automated system that required no input from the user so that's a um, basically a syntax, a directed, what do you call it, a determinate algorithm, like a finite automata, DFA something, like a simple automata that would map one type onto the other, like a Haskell function. You don't need a human. Involved. Okay, so we can imagine that, and then, well, so he just jumps to uh, to Girdle, uh, and Girdle starts to add in some kind of secret number. So I didn't understand that, where every theorem had a secret number associated with it and you could map the theorems onto numbers, so I I don't get that. And then he went on to say that uh, that the Entscheidungsproblem, the, the problem of decidability of algorithms would terminate on algorithms that are If it's true, okay, so the question is will a given algorithm terminate? Right? The halting problem. And if they, um... and basically, what we understood is that logic. So this is just a rough summary of all my understanding of that. And I'm a little fuzzy on it. I should go back and listen to exactly what the guy said. We should clip it. So, we're gonna go back and we're gonna clip these parts from the guy's talk. And we're gonna analyze them together, okay? So let's go back and do that. Okay, so re-listening to that clip, he basically said <clears throat> that numbers are identities of pluralities or identities of sets. I guess you could just map a number and say this number defines a set with a um, element in it if it's mapping everything to set theory. So number one is the identity of a set with one element with element one in it, or with one element in it. I guess you could also say you could even make it simpler and just say the number is identity of a set of the size of the number anyway I guess it really doesn't matter we'll have to really read what he said and we could do that right now because this is is the stream of random and I could just put this tape on pause and we can go in but let's queue up This guy's clip and then we will actually go and read some Frege in German Let's see what he has to say.
1: As you mentioned, in, in, in 1879, um, Gottlieb Frege produced a system of logic that is now called the predicate calculus. And the expressive power, what you could represent and reason about in that system, actually dwarfed all previous systems. Why did he do this? He did it because he wanted to answer two philosophical questions. First, what are numbers, in particular, natural numbers, one, two, three, four? And what is mathematical knowledge, especially arithmetical knowledge? He answered that natural numbers are properties of a certain sort. Ways for things, or as I put them, pluralities, to be. And he answered that mathematical knowledge is logical knowledge. For that idea to work, he needed a logic powerful enough to define natural numbers and to prove the axioms of arithmetic from those definitions, plus the laws of pure logic. The method could then be extended to theories in higher mathematics by reducing them to arithmetic, which would then, of course, be reduced to logic again. What is it to reduce one theory to another? To reduce theory A to theory B.
0: All right, let's consult the book of knowledge. Consult the book of knowledge. So basically, Frege was ignored in his life but the work that he wrote, The Grundlagen der Arithmetic, um, Arithmetic the Foundations of Arithmetic, published in 1884, he developed his own theory of numbers. <clears throat> and his book was ignored, but it was read by Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein. Now we do know Bertrand Russell was the guy who motivated Gödel. So Russell was trying to um, <clears throat> convert all math into logic with no um, <clears throat> with no uh, contradictions, and then Gödel went ahead and proved that you could contradict everything. That I do remember. So, a logisch-mathematische Untersuchung über den Begriff der Zahl. So, let's see, what's his view of the number? Okay, Frege is saying that numbers are not subjective, and if you say his desk has five drawers, that not every drawer is in the number five, <clears throat> and they have identity. So there are four horses can be turned into, the number of horses is four. Then you don't have to ask if there's any numbers after four. Think of the numbers as objects, okay. The fundamental thought is that the number of all of horses in the barn is four, means that four objects fall under the concept horse in the barn. And then he gets into the cardinality and he calls it big N of X or big F of X which is the number of F's equals so Yeah, I, I don't get this. He says he defines numbers as extensions of concepts. The number of f F's is defined as the extension of the concept G. G is a concept that is equinumerous to F. So G there's another concept over there that has the same number as this concept. And there's an equivalence class of all the concepts that have the same number. boy this is some deep stuff here guys so we're saying that because something has the same amount of numbers that it's equinumerous it's got the same okay so we said that that it has the same amount of numbers So I don't know. You have four horses, and the, the number of the horses in the barn is four. And the number of saddles in the barn is four. And the number of horse mouths in the in the barn is four. They all have the same numbers. Is that what he's saying? There's a class of number four things with the number four that are of the number four. But what if you say the number of limbs that I have is four? Okay, so this number four is used all over the place, huh? I don't know, this, is, this, this stuff is gonna be hard to wrap our head around. Let's see if we can find someone who will explain it to us better than this Wikipedia article, because this article sucks. Let's check out Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy and see what they have to say about the numbers. Oh, so he formalized the idea of proof that is accepted today. Okay, so he defined the predecessor relationship, which we know. Okay, so I can tell you about the predecessor relationship and the successor relationship. And basically, there's a relationship between the two sets or the two numbers, you a function. Yeah, and then <laughs> if you want to count to 10, then you've got the successor of the successor of the successor function 10 times, right? Um, I do remember that. Okay, so here, the basis of Frege's term uh, logic and predicate calculus. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Here we go. So he's got the he's got his first text was Begriffschrift or um a Begriff is a definition and then he put he says he put out that term logics okay all complete Okay, the basis of Frege's term logic. Okay. He doesn't even define numbers. Okay, we're going to stop this. We're going to find someone who's going to explain it to us in a clip. So, stop tape. Let's go. Where's this recording? Okay, so I did some listening and did some to different YouTube videos. Okay, so the idea of a property is simple: that the property of something, like the color of something, an attribute of something, that we can observe. Okay, so that's the first thing. Look at this: the New Jersey Department of corrections school bus with inmates in it. <coughs> So basically, boy, I feel free right now. Let me tell you. Um, <clears throat> so that's the ph- philosophical idea of Plato, and <clears throat> then another guy, Number File, was talking about whether or not an idea. Numbers exist outside of Observation if they exist in the reality and whether um, They exist in form in formalism and forms on paper in a logical system So we don't have the actual um, We don't have the um, the actual definition just yet. We might actually have to just read Frege's original text to get to the bottom of this, but I've got a great clip from PBS coming up, which kind of goes over this in a kind of funky, nice way. and gives us some insight. So let's see what the PBS take is.
2: It's about natural numbers. Mathematical objects and their properties, the things we prove theorems about, are defined in terms of other mathematical objects and their properties. Math is built out of simpler math, hence the pyramid idea. But where does this process of simplification end? In other words, what holds up the bottom of the pyramid? In the late 1800s and early 1900s, this was a real crisis for mathematicians and philosophers. Mathematics has no foundation. Gottlob Frege and Bertrand Russell were very worried about mathematics seeming lack of a foundation. Along with Richard Dedekind of the aforementioned Dedekind cuts, they founded and advocated for a philosophical position known as logicism, as in logic plus ism. Basically, logicism says that the bottom of the pyramid of mathematics is logic. Mathematics is founded in logic. Essentially, mathematics is logic. In Russell's words, the goal of logicism is to show that all pure mathematics follows from purely logical premises and uses only concepts definable in logical terms. Just as we reduced all statements about the real numbers to statements about natural numbers, the logicist wants to reduce the natural numbers, and everything else, to logic. This leads to some obvious questions, like what exactly is logic? Logicism is a philosophical position, and the intended meaning of the word logic is fundamentally philosophical and not mathematical. The definition is difficult to pinpoint and different for each logicist. But mathematician Ernst Snapper writes that, generally, the logicist thought that a logical proposition is a proposition which has complete generality and is true in virtue of its form rather than its content. For example, the law of excluded middle. For any proposition P, either P or not P. Logic should feel simple, natural, and never ad hoc. That's what allows it to ground mathematics, to sit at the base of the pyramid. In the late 1800s, Gottlieb Frege became the first person to earnestly attempt to carry out the logicist project. He spent years developing an extensive system of logical axioms and notation, a foundational system, from which he derived the basic laws of arithmetic. The project seemed to be a logicist success until Bertrand Russell rather famously ruined it. Just as Frege's book was going to press, Russell pointed out that Frege's system contained a contradiction. Using the Basic Law 5, one could derive Russell's paradox, the set of all sets that do not contain themselves. Even though Russell witnessed the specific errors in Frege's work, he was inspired by its central goal, to give mathematics a logical foundation. Together with Alfred North Whitehead, Russell continued to push the logicist agenda in their three-volume Principia Mathematica. The work succeeded in reducing large sections of mathematics to an axiomatic system, and famously exhausted the first few hundred pages proving that 1 plus 1 equals 2. not all the axioms they used were pure logic. This is essentially the same status as mathematics most well-known axiomatic system, Zermelo-Frankel's set theory. From the axioms of ZF set theory, even without the sometimes controversial axiom of choice, one can derive most of classical mathematics. That is, you can reduce most known math to those eight or nine axioms, a logist's success. We now know, thanks to Gödel, that we'll never have an axiom system which produces all of math. It's impossible to prove the ZF axioms will never produce a contradiction, but none have been found so far. Another good sign. Unfortunately, some of the ZF axioms cannot be considered pure logic. For example, the axiom of infinity, which asserts that there exists infinite sets, cannot reasonably be considered an axiom of pure form, it asserts something about content, something more than basic logic. So, as Snapper jokes, since at least two out of the nine axioms of ZF are not logical propositions in the sense of logicism, it is fair to say that this school failed by about 20% in its efforts to give mathematics a firm foundation. Logicism had some successes and huge portions of modern mathematical logic are the historical or mathematical consequences of the crisis about the foundations of mathematics. We've never really figured out what's at the bottom of the pyramid, but along the way we've discovered a ton of other fascinating mathematics and philosophy.
0: Okay, we're going to go back to Stanford's uh, <clears throat> Plato. Stanford EU, and I'm going to read you the table of contents of their presentation of Frege's, Frege's proof. <sighs> So for the numbers, Frege's analysis of cardinal numbers, so equinumerosity, okay? And then the numbers of F's, Hume's principle, the explicit definition of the number of F's, and derivation, derivation of Hume's principle, so deriving. So that's the, um, his analysis of cardinal numbers is based on Hume's principle. And we're gonna to get to that in a second. And we, sh- we did read little bits of that. We struggled with that before. And then Frege's analysis of predecessor, and ancestrals and natural numbers. Predecessor, ancestral relationship of R, concept of natural number. And then Frege's theorem, zero is a number. Zero isn't the successor of any number. No two numbers have the same successor. The principle of mathematical induction, every number has a successor and arithmetic. So it seems like that's getting back to the successor function and the predecessor function starting with zero. Every number will have a successor. And there's an identity to that. And there's only one set Of numbers specified by four the successor of zero is one the successor of one is two three and four let's say and those are four different sets um, that are unique and global in this system okay so we're gonna try and read Hume's um, Hume's principle and maybe we're gonna have to go back and understand what Hume is So, Hume's principle is the number of Fs is identical to the number of Gs if and only if F and G are equinumerous. So A phone call from school. Okay, so now we're going to get to the Hume's principle again and look at the Wikipedia article on it. Hume's principle was coined by George Boulos. B O O L O S. Says that the number of Fs is equal to the number of Gs if and only if there's a one to one correspondence, or bijection, between the Fs and the Gs. A one-to-one correspondence. H.P. Hume's Principle can be stated formally in Systems of Second-Order Logic. It's named for the Scottish philosopher David Hume. It wasn't from him. It plays a central role in Frege's philosophy of mathematics, Frege shows that Hume's principle and suitable definitions of arithmetic notations entail all axioms, of which we now call second-order arithmetic. This result is known as Frege's theorem, which is the foundation for philosophy and mathematics known as neologicism. Origins. Okay, Hume's principle appears in Frege's foundations of arithmetic which quotes from part three of book one of David Hume's A Treatise of Human Nature, 1740. So Frege is quoting Hume. Hume... Hume there sets out seven fundamental relationships between ideas. So, what are these seven foundational relationships? Proportion and quantity or number is one of them. Hume argues that our reasoning about proportion and quantity, as represented by geometry, can never achieve perfect precision and exactness, since the principles are derived from sense appearance. So yeah, if you're just looking at stuff and measuring it, you'll never get it exact. He contrasts this with reasoning about numbers arithmetic in which a preciseness can be attained because it's logical. So now we're quoting from Hume. Algebra and arithmetic are the only sciences in which we can carry out on a chain of reasoning to any degree of intricacy and yet preserve a perfect exactness and certainty. We are possessed of a precise standard by which we can judge the equality and proportion of numbers. And according as they correspond or not to the standard, we will determine their relations without any possibility of error. So, completely logical. When two numbers are so combined as that one always has a unit answering to every unit of the other, we will pronounce them as equal. So the unit of one answers to every unit of the other okay that's pretty cool they're answering to each other they're relating to each other like the zipper function in pascal you get the zip <clears throat> you take two one of each and it is for want of such a standard of equality and spatial extension that geometry can scarcely to be perfect and fallible science okay note that hume's use of the word number in the ancient sense to mean a, a set or collection of things rather than the common modern notion of a positive integer the ancient greek notion of a number of a finite plurality composed of units see aristotle metaphysics 1020A14 and Euclid Elements, Book 7, Definition 1 and 2. This, the contrast between old and modern conception of a number is discussed in detail in Mayberry 2000. Okay, influence on set theory. So now we're finally getting into some good stuff here on the Wikipedia. Um. The principle that the cardinal number was to be characterized in terms of a one-to-one correspondence had been previously used to great effect by Georg Cantor, whose writings Frege knew, the old Swiss guy with infinite sets in the numbers. The suggestion has been therefore made that Hume's principle ought to be called, better called, the Cantor Principle, or the Hume Cantor Principle. But Frege criticized Cantor on the ground that Cantor defines cardinal numbers in terms of ordinal numbers. Whereas Frege wanted to give the characterization of the cardinals, which was independent of the ordinals. Okay, that's pretty deep. Cantor's point of view, however, is the one embedded in the contemporary theories of transfinite numbers, as well as the developed in axiom set theory. Okay, so there we've got it, guys. The Hume principle is the one-to-one relationship between numbers, the zipper principle. For every side of the zipper. On one side of the left, you got another one on the right, and they interlock and connect with each other. So if you have a successor function, and you're like, go to the first, starting with zero, go to the first element in the one set, and then on the other set, you also go to the first element, the one, and they relate to each other, they're connected. The first element in one is related to the other, and then the second element, and the, the third and the fourth and fifth are all connected to each other back and forth between the two sets. And then you could be said to be have the same number, which is basically the same number of successor functions being called on both. <clears throat> so yeah, that is uh, quite the interesting way to look at it. I think we have some idea of what we're talking about now, and um, I wonder how many people are still with us. But what the hey, we got to get to the bottom of these things here. Yeah, we could go into Cantor and his sets, um, and his cardinalities, where he came up with these incredibly complex sets. Basis of mathematics, and maybe we should take a step back next and talk about Cantor. You know, in the history of math, I mean, I have to say, I don't think that philosopher guy uh, really uh, explained it well, uh, and we need to uh, really revisit all of this, so I think we're going to do an extra episode on Cantor, and we're going to go back in a successor function, or predecessor function, so we're going to get the predecessor of Frege, because we all know, like, Van Neumann, and our friend they made a movie about, the Code Cracker, the British guy. has this famous test, the Turing test. We all know about Turing, but we do we know all about Gödel and Frege and the philosophy behind it. So let's take this back to Cantor next and find out what's happening. Let's get this episode out. I gotta go to work now. It's already 8.13, so today's a short episode. And I will see you tomorrow if all things go well.